At the University of Arizona Bio5 Institute, we are focused on tackling complex challenges such as disease, hunger, water and food safety, and other health and environmental issues facing our families, communities, and the world. Bio5 brings together hundreds of multifaceted experts that include world-class scientists, engineers, physicians, and computational researchers in a team science environment designed to creatively solve difficult problems. This approach has resulted in disease prevention strategies, promising new therapies, innovative diagnostics and devices, and improved food crops. Join us each week as we talk about science with researchers, staff, and students from the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Science Talks, a conversation hosted by the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. My name is Sean Caden. And I'm Brick Moreno. And infectious diseases are a major cause of death in countries all over across the world. At the Bio5 Institute, our interdisciplinary researchers are not only studying viruses and bacteria that cause illnesses, they're also training the next generation of STEM professionals. Add to that full plate, they're also educating our community about how viruses spread, while providing valuable outreach support and opportunities. Today, we're talking with Dr. Felicia Goodrum, Professor of Immunobiology. Dr. Goodrum is well known for her research on human cytomegalovirus. This is a virus that persists in the majority of the population worldwide and is the leading cause of infectious disease-related birth defects. She has also had extensive experience in mentorship, undergraduate and graduate students, as well as postdoctoral trainees. Dr. Goodrum, it's wonderful to have you with us today. It's great to be here, Sean. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. So uh, one, of my, one of my best memories, I, I, I've known you for a long time. We've known each other for over 10 years. One of my favorite memories of, of our interactions was having my son's uh, second, is he, was he the second or third grade oh. uh, STEM class come meet you? <laughs> because I've been talking about you a lot. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and, and I talked with his STEM teacher and she thought that would be a great idea to come and tour Bio5 and she got a chance to, to, come, to come and meet you as well. And, and I, it just got me thinking, so, so how old were you when you first got, and this is no, um, no uh, virus pun intended, the, uh, the, science, <laughs> the, science. the science bug. Yeah, I honestly, it was sixth grade. I had a teacher that just made it really exciting and, oh. and it just grew from there. So it does need to happen at a very early stage. And I think that's mm -hmm. one of the places uh, as a country where we need to really improve our science education and engaging kids um, and especially kids that don't have easy access to it um, to uh, really understand what the scientific endeavor is and what it can offer. Wow. So sixth grade and you knew you wanted to be a world renowned virologist. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I was just fascinated with science. So then I decided, you know, that that interest continued throughout my um, education. But then when I went to college, I became a biology major. But you know what? I went to graduate school because as a biology major, there was nothing I could really do that excited me just with a mm -hmm. bachelor's degree in mm -hmm. biology. And so I decided to apply to graduate school, not knowing a lot about what research was because at that time, 
undergraduate research was not as nearly as much of a thing as it is now. And so oh, wow. I had had some jo summer jobs with companies kind of doing the same thing all day long. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know what research was. And within two weeks of being in graduate school, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. Oh, <laughs> wow. This was totally it because I kind of, you know, I really fell in love with the idea that you get to go into a lab and ask a question that has never really been asked um, and seek to find an answer through experimentation. And that was, huh. and still is the yeah. most exciting yep. thing to me and what I hope to infect everybody with that enters my lab. Infect. <laughs> <laughs> well played. I love it. Pun intended. <laughs> Another another thing that I really appreciate about you is your ability to to shift the focus of your talks to to the group that you're talking with. Uh, for instance, I have already mentioned my son coming through your lab, and you're talking to second or third graders. Uh, I've I've seen you give talks to uh, a sponsored project tour that came through your group, <laughs> uh, and obviously you're very well versed and communicating scientifically with all the various groups. You're in, you're in high demand as a virologist. So, so talk about some of those kind of key elements towards really identifying your audience and how you communicate effectively with that audience. Oh, it's so important to what we were just talking about and, and reaching people. Um, science plays such an important role in society, whether it's the medicine we eat, the cars we drive, the way we conserve energy, the food that we eat. I mean, this is, there's nothing in your daily life that science hasn't impacted. Mm -hmm. And we truly um, work for um, the citizens of this country. We are paid by their tax dollars to do the science that they need for their lives. And so it's so critical that we're able to reach those people and talk with those people. And so we can't, you know, you have to appreciate, as I know you do, uh, that you can very quickly get lost in the weeds of, of scientific jargon and technical mm -hmm. language. Um, and that's a language that has evolved amongst scientists so that we can rapidly communicate ideas and things that were observations that we're seeing. But we can't talk to everybody like that because <laughs> it's very off-putting and we can't talk down to people and we, um, we can't talk as if like we have all the answers. You, know, you really <laughs> have to like, you have to meet people where they are and try to communicate what it is that we are doing for each person um, as a citizen of the United States, what we are doing with their tax, tax dollars to make their lives better. Um, and it's just, it's a really important and, and not easy art, but I think it's something that each of us needs to learn to hone. I mean, it's a, it's a very big commitment, I think, that I've taken on. And I really encourage everybody to, because if the public doesn't understand what we're doing as scientists, then we're not doing our jobs because that needs to be an equal part of it. Awesome. Gosh, I love that. Well, on the note of communicating your science, so tell us about your science. You study cytomegalovirus. <laughs> I don't know if I butchered that. Um, Tell us about that. How did you come to that topic of research? Where are you at in your research? Right. So um, the, it is cyto, as in, that means cell, megalo, big, megalo. virus. So it is a virus that was first observed in congenital infected infants. Mm -hmm. um, 
or people who had been infected and had like um, hepatitis due to it, but they observed in the microscope these very large cells. And so that's how the virus got its name, cytomegalovirus, and it, or CMV is much easier than that. So I'll just tell you a little bit about it. It is a herpes virus. There are actually nine herpes viruses that infect humans and ah. this is one of them. 99% up to 99% of the population worldwide is infected with this virus and most people don't know it. We are usually infected as children and we carry it with us our whole lives. And this virus is so highly evolved with us that it really has learned human biology. It knows our biology far better than we do. And so it's nicely just become part of us and, and goes along with us. And, um, and then we, we serve as a vector to spread the virus so it can infect more people and, and survive. And with most herpes viruses, I mean, this is all, well, all herpes viruses can establish this lifelong infection. So once, once you're infected with the herpes virus, herpes is forever and you always carry that virus. And so what my lab is really interested in studying is how that happens. Because with uh -huh. many viruses like the flu or the common cold, stomach virus, you know, gastrointestinal viruses, you are infected, they make you really sick. Um, and then your immune system eventually clears that virus and, mm -hmm. and you, you go on and your relationship with that virus is over until you encounter it again. Um, but with CMV, once you're infected, and with any herpes virus, once you're infected, you're always infected. And so that's really an evolutionary feat. If you think about how amazing our immune systems are, that a virus right. can actually evade immune clearance. And so we want to understand that very um, intricate and complex relationship that it has with the human host. And, and I know because I've read some of your specific aims pages. <laughs> You're a brave man. Sean. Yes. Well, I'm not saying I understood it, but I read uh, that, that latency is a real element that, that you know, the fact that a, a, a virus can lay dormant in one's body and then trigger by exactly. certain, certain elements and how, what are those triggers trying to determine what those triggers are. I know with, with our, what's going on now with the COVID-19 virus, um, some people, they get really sick and some people don't get very sick at all. So it's, it's trying to figure out what, what is the trigger or what is the thing that, that is going to make somebody, it become from a latent, something that's in the background to something that's, right. that's current and something you have to deal with. So that's right. And so latency is the ability of the virus to sort of maintain a dormant or quiet state in us. And then there will be stresses or um, the loss of sort of that immune surveillance that will trigger the virus to reactivate. And when the virus reactivates, if you don't have a, a robust immune system, then um, the virus can cause disease. And so this is particularly an issue in people who are immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. AIDS... Um, the AIDS epidemic was a huge place where CMV was very important because CMV was causing a pneumonia that was killing um, ah. a large number of people who were infected with um, HIV. And as they became more immunosuppressed, CMV was causing problems. And it is still to this day a very important problem in transplant patients who have to go undergo some sort of immunosuppression in order to accept a transplanted organ 
or stem cells. And so the virus is a huge problem there. The other place where this virus is, is really um, devastating is in the context of congenital infection. So this is the leading cause of birth defects is a CMV infection. Oh, wow. One in 150 babies born in the US wow. and can lead to mild to severe hearing loss and mild to severe um, cognitive deficits. Um, so it, it's a very important um, virus in that regard to human health, um, but it also teaches us so much about human biology, cell biology, virology, and how viruses persist with us and what defines a virus that isn't going to cause disease versus those that the conditions in, under which that they will. Yeah, interesting. And you, and I believe you said 99% of the global population? Up to. So Up in to. the United States, it's more like 60 to 70% of the population is infected. But in places, big uh, metropolitan areas and countries maybe that are not as well developed or have very high densities, mm. um, it's like 99% of their population is CMB positive. Fascinating. And, and how, how do I not know this? How is this not more heavily <laughs> discussed or distributed in your opinion? Well, because the virus doesn't typically cause disease in healthy people. It is something that we just carry mm. along with us. But there is perhaps costs as well as benefits to having a virus like this persist within us because it does impact our biology. And so, for example, mm. there have been scientific findings that CMV, the persistence of CMV in people can lead to enhanced responses to vaccines like the annual flu vaccine. Um, and so that, and there are some possible benefits in young, healthy people, but maybe those benefits are lost as people age and it can contribute to pathologies, for example, in, in wow. older individuals. And so those are all things that we're trying to understand. And specifically in my lab, we really want to understand how the virus has really hardwired itself into our biology. Uh -huh. So it's persisting in your cells and it has to be able to sense the environment to know when to stay quiet or when to reactivate and make some virus to spread. And so to do that, it's basically monitoring the molecular messengers that are running around our cells, dictating when a cell should divide or when a cell should be sensing stress. And the virus has found ways to, to monitor that and then respond to those signals as wow. if it were really part of us. Oh. And you mentioned your lab. So, so I had the, the pleasure of seeing your lab explain CMV to people at Discover Bio 5. Uh, I know you, you were out of town at the time, but your lab represented you very well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think uh, one of your lab members saved me from answering CMV questions because I happened to be <laughs> on your floor. And they were asking me and I said, well, if I could read the poster to your right, <laughs> try and tell you what it means, but uh, oh good, there's somebody who actually works in Felicia's lab and they were able to rescue me, so. But Sean, I thought you've read the papers. I've read the papers, I can't explain <laughs> it. <laughs> I, I'm interested by it, I just, I always wanna know more. So it, it just, it reminds me of, of your mentorship and how you've had, you've had a lot of students, uh, undergrads, graduate students, you've had postdocs that have come through your lab. Talk about your mentorship plan and how, how, how you identify uh, people to come into your lab that have the qualities that you're looking for mm -hmm. and, and, and how you encourage them to pursue, to pursue science. 
Yeah, wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really important one though because it's it's why I'm an academic scientist. So you could be a scientist in a, mm. a company and it would be a very different environment. But in academic science, part of that mission is is training the next generation of scientists. And it is truly the greatest love of my day, other than meeting with Sean, um, <laughs> to, uh, to interact with these young scientists and watch them develop their own love of discovery and, and being able to ask those questions that nobody has ever asked and, and find the answers. And it is such a special moment um, when you're sitting with a student and they have a discovery that you know you realize that you're the only two people on the planet that actually uh, know this wow. bit of information right mm -hmm. now. Um, and so there's there's many facets to it, but you know the fit of an individual to a lab is really important. And so mm. it's not a one size fits all. And so I like to identify people from my lab that are out of the box thinkers. Um, mm. They may be diamonds in the rough. They may not. They may not come uh, with a, a resume or a CV on paper that makes you think, oh, this is just the right person, but they have something, a spark. They have an energy for discovery and they're excited about science and they wanna really contribute um, and they have a tenacity that you need to persevere in science with a lot of failure and keep going. And so I, one example or two examples, I guess I could give you right now is um, Luanika Malira is a scientist in my lab originally from Zimbabwe. He trained in the UK and then South Africa, made his way to the United wow. States where he worked at the Rocky Mountain Labs in Montana. And then I was able to recruit him here. And he has been working on a project for two years. Um, and he, he began this project and we both thought, okay, this is well-defined. This is what you need to do, piece of cake. It was so far from a piece of cake. It was so hard. <laughs> and yesterday he presented the findings that finally, oh. after two years of work, now we're like, okay, we've got this. Now we know. Oh. And, you know, that really took so much perseverance. And there are many times where he and I both thought, you know, is this not going to work? We talked about, do we put this aside for a while? Wow. But he really innovated past every single challenge this project threw at him and was willing to keep his mind open and his hope in check. And, <laughs> and he has now come to a great discovery that allows us to sort of understand part of what the virus is sensing in the human ah. host and changes and how um, the human host is, is metabolizing cholesterol and lipids to make decisions, you know, how the, vi the virus senses that to know how to make decisions. And so that um, is, is a great example of, of the kind of person I think that, that does really well in science and that I really love working with. Another um, more senior level scientist who started with me as a graduate student is Sebastian Zeltzer. And he came to science with not having a, a, a real background in science. He'd actually worked as a social worker for many years, but he Ooh. had this love for science. He was so curious. I mean, he, uh, he asks questions to no end. And so he, um, you know, that passion really spoke to me and I was willing to do the training to get him to where he needed to be to be a scientist. And now 
you know, he just really drives a lot of innovation in the lab and he asks, you know, questions that escape many of us because he comes from a different, very different perspective, right? Not having been doing this forever and thinking about this virus forever. He brings a fresh perspective. Ah. It allows him to show up in my office and ask a question that I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and then he'll say, well, can I, can I, can I ask it? Can I do it? <laughs> yeah, go do it. And so he's, he's made some really important discoveries there. So those are the kind of people um, that are really fun that have you know, a lot of energy that they bring to this endeavor. And it's this group of people working together and they're very interactive and conversational and um, you know, side by side at the bench talking about all kinds of things. And it's just mm -hmm. amazing what comes out of it. So I, I don't know that that really gets to how I mentor, but um, I think that's what I'm looking for in the kind of lab I like to build. As far as my mentorship, I think the most important thing is to capitalize on each person's strengths. So, so to identify what those are and then bring them to the forefront in the group um, and, and help develop their critical thinking and their independence. And so I don't dictate the experiments they're doing on a daily basis. They're really doing that and managing their own projects. I think the ownership of your own project is really important for your level in, of investment in it. Wow. And that they have to they have to really drive that. I'm always available though, literally 24-7, to answer questions or to talk about it or to discuss um, discuss the issues and, and to be their cheerleader in many ways um, and to keep them going when things get hard, you know, see the see the bigger perspective and the long game that science always is, is a very long game. And so um, I think you know, that's largely my role in developing their scientific philosophy, the philosophy with which they will approach their experiments and the way they, they will hopefully conduct science as they go forward yes. in independent this, positions. This can be a recruitment video for your lab. <laughs> We, we uh, well, now's the time for your plug right not everybody wants that i guess <laughs> it's true well that's i i think that those are all i have a background in education i think those are all just the the key words that you try to foster as an educator and those that you're working with and bringing them up to speed and giving them that resiliency that familiarity with failure the tenacity i love that yes word. so i'm curious I, how did you develop that? Did you, has mentorship played a large role in your life, um, in, in the field, in your, the field that you're in as a woman in science? Tell me a little bit about your mentor, mentoring background. Yeah, so I had a lot of strong mentors up until I went to graduate school. Hmm. Um, biochemistry professors, molecular biology professors, people who just took a lot of interest. And so I don't expect, um, for people to leave science in the lab. Science is really something you've gotta be thinking about when you're walking your dog and taking a shower and you know, going to sleep at night and waking up in the morning. And wow. so they can't leave science in the lab and I don't expect them to leave their personal lives at home. And so, you know, science is a lifestyle, it's not a job. Um, it's, it's hardly wow. even a career, it's really a lifestyle. And so people have to be willing um, to live it, drink it, breathe it. And, um, and it is a whole, a whole body, whole person endeavor. And so I really want to know that whole person. 
um, and engage every bit of them because it is the intangibles that they did not learn in school that they're going to bring to science that are going to make mm. it you know really valuable and so finding that fit and mentor is so important and you know it is very important as a, I think that students approach um, this with a very open mind right um, and try not to put up too many boundaries far too often students are like I must study viruses <laughs> or I must study whatever it is and I went to graduate school thinking I have a very open mind there's only one thing I don't want to study was it viruses viruses ah! wow <laughs> and, I, I think I've heard that before yeah um and one of my college professors oh, how she had actually sat down with me she she had sat down with me at a student center burger king um, and flipped through the paper faculty book for the department um, that I was going to do my graduate work in at Wake Forest University. And she was, you know, just sort of pointing out some people that she thought seemed like they had really great research programs. And so um, I took that very seriously and I went to visit each of those faculty members. Uh, and I, I met, one of the first people I met with was David Ornelas. And he was originally from Hawaii. He had journeyed um, and done his graduate work at MIT and then his postdoctoral work at Princeton. And he was a brand new faculty member. He didn't have any graduate students. And I, I talked to him and he studied viruses. And he captivated me immediately with how he was using these viruses to understand the cell. Um, and I thought, wow. okay, cool, I can get down with that. And so within, <laughs> Two weeks of being in his lab, I was really completely taken by his mentorship style. And, um, and our, you know, we just, we had a really a great connection around the way we saw science and the questions. And over those five years of being in his laboratory, we both fell in love with the virus. And we are both, we both proudly call ourselves virologists now. Wow. Oh my gosh. It's, it's but, kind of like, those decisions that you make in your life, you're like, I went and I talked to this person. And because I talked to this person, this is where I am now. I, those are really, really amazing kind of moments in, in existence. I mean, I could still remember meeting you at, uh, when, I first, when I first came to Bio5 in the university, which segues into my next question. So as you see from behind us, uh, we are entering our 20th year uh, as an institute. What has Bio5 meant to you over these 20 years? Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a scientific home, which I think as a virologist has been particularly fruitful because, um, you know, with a virus, especially cytomegalovirus, I mean, CMV is the most complex virus we know that infects humans. And so, um, you never know where it's going to take you. And part of my approach to science is we do not ask the questions that we have the tools to answer. We ask the questions that need to be mm. asked. And so in doing that, you just, you don't know from day to day where you're going to be. And in fact, there's many things that my lab has done over these years of being at Bio5 that I would have definitely never planned to do or sought to do but it's where we've ended up with the science and, and we just follow the virus and that's where it took us and so you have to be able to find people around you 
that have the tools that allow you to then address this new question. And so Bio5 has been great for that because it is interdisciplinary. Um, there are no boundaries as far as like, you know, what defines what we do. Um, mm. And then there's been this amazing and critical support that Bio5 has offered people like Sean and Kate Riley and Amy and Lisa Romero and Lomax. Boy, oh. I mean, it's, they make my science work. They make it so that I can come here and actually do the things that I'm supposed to do as a scientist to create, to get the grants, to discover the findings, to publish those findings. They make all that possible because they actually remove all the other barriers that naturally exist um, to doing this sort of stuff. Um, the business well, side of it really. <laughs> I mean, you're inspiring to us. I mean, you make science. <laughs> I'm not joking. I mean, let's just have a big old love fest. I <laughs> know. Uh, <laughs> we knew this was going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, it it helps. It helps to have people who are passionate. A lot of the things that you were talking about, people who are curious, people who don't give up hope, even though you hope is not something you can see. Uh, when when you're not getting the results that that you want, uh, things like I, and I've heard you say this before. Bring me data, you know, and I don't care if it's good data or bad data. At least it's something because sometimes bad data can tell us we're headed down a path that we we shouldn't be headed down. Maybe we need to adjust. Uh, these are all things that that I find very very inspiring um, to to know people people like you exist. Uh, and and yeah, are, and are, absolutely. and are, and are, I mean are not afraid of those tough questions. It's like I want to I want to answer questions that that we have. I want to ask questions that we have answers to, as opposed to questions that may or may not have an answer that's easy to attain. Yeah, that so is. It's one of the. I think it's one of the most defining things of a scientist is. You, know, you have a question, and there are you know a thousand possibilities before you. And you have to be able to sort of thin slice the information in front of you to pick, all right, what, you know, where am I going to put the money? Mm. Which, which, which is the thing I'm going to latch on to. And it's just, yeah. you know, that's an important, important piece. <laughs> Great. We, we have to ask, because we ask a lot of science questions. What, tell us something about you that maybe people don't know. Oh, I don't. Um... Wonderful singing voice. <laughs> An acting background. <laughs> That's right. No, um, I, I've been playing the cello for the past two There years. you go. <laughs> Which is something I just think it's one of those beautiful instruments that I have never in my life played an instrument. I never had any interest, honestly. My grandmother, who was born in 1901, was a, oh had a master's degree in music, and wow, uh, it was really her life. Um, she had an entire music room in her home, wow. and I think it was one of the saddest aspects um, that neither her children nor her grandchildren oh. pursued music. So I hope she knows um, she would be so <laughs> happy. Taken to it. Yeah, she would be so happy. And boy, I mean, it's so hard and it uses my brain in different ways. So I'm fully convinced that learning the cello is actually helping my science. Oh, for sure. You're, you're demonstrating <laughs> the significance of being a lifelong learner. That's right. Well, that's so important. I mean, in science, you never get to stop learning. And, and when you think there's nothing else to be learned or you're oh. not interested in learning anymore, that's it's game over. 
Wow. I think we could probably talk for hours and hours. <laughs> I, I just want to say thank you for, for all you do, Felicia, for, for being inspiring to all of us, for being a great teammate. Uh, I appreciate, I consider myself part of your lab. Uh, you are. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the bench work, uh, but one of these days I should volunteer uh, because it, I think it would be a great experience. Whoa. Yes. I said that. I, I'm going to watch. Uh, so uh, just thank you for all you do. And thank you for joining oh, us today. You. This has been a lot yeah. of fun. And, uh, and please, definitely the highlight of my zoom day. Uh, <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> we appreciate being the highlight of your zoom day. You are the highlight of ours as well. So so I want to thank Dr. Goodwin for joining us today and for everything she's contributed to the Bio5 Institute, our university and our community. Please join us for future talks where we will continue to highlight our amazing University of Arizona researchers. To learn more about the Bio5 Institute, please visit our website at bio5.org. And from all of us here at the Bio5 Institute, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Goodrum. Thank you. Thank you. To our audience for tuning in to another episode of Science Talks. Continue the conversation with us next time as we learn more about the science happening at the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute.